so the first time I saw Spielberg, I said, Mr. Spielberg, do you have any advice for a you know, first-time filmmaker? And he said, yeah, never make a movie involving boats or animals. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Wild Voices Project podcast. Today, I'm really excited to share with you a conversation with Louis Psehoyos, who is a Greek-American filmmaker, photographer, and director. Louis began his career as one of the first new photographers that National Geographic magazine had hired in several years. But he's perhaps best known as the director of The Cove, an amazing and very emotive film about the slaughter of dolphins in Japan. And he won an Oscar for Best Documentary Feature for that film in 2010. He's also made the incredible film Racing Extinction, about the sixth global mass extinction crisis of species, which he did with Sean Heinrichs, who's previously been, been uh, interviewed on this podcast as well. And he's currently working on The Game Changers with James Cameron of Avatar fame. The Game Changers is a film about vegan super-athletes, which is due out later this year. And finally, he's the founder and the chief executive of the Ocean Oceanic Preservation Society, which you can find at www.opsociety.org. In the course of this conversation, we talk about how Louis pioneered a new form of environmental journalism when he was at National Geographic, how a chance meeting with Steven Spielberg and a passion for dinosaurs and paleontology ignited his interest in extinction, and why he believes that a plant-based diet is the best for our health, our wallets, and for the planet. This is a fascinating conversation, not just with an Oscar winner, but with one of the world's leading environmental filmmakers and, as you're going to hear, advocates. And finally, just to remind you that the Wild Voices Project podcast tells the stories of the people saving nature. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes or in Stitcher, You can find our website at wildvoicesproject.org and you can follow us on Twitter at wildvoicesproj. And we're part of Wild Voices Media, a global production team bridging emerging storytellers and aspiring environmental professionals. And you can learn more about the global community at wild-voices.org. Now, without any further ado, let's dive into this episode. certainly have a lot more uh, experience in being an environmentalist than me. I came to it, I would say, fairly late. But, I mean, I started out that way, then it wore off. I was, uh, are we ready? You ready to go? Yeah, yeah, we can go. That was actually going to be my first question, really. So I know that you got involved in some activism around when you were 17 or 18, but did did your interest in the environment start, start at all before that? Did you have any kind of connection in childhood? Uh, I would say my first... A connection with environmentalists is meeting an environmentalist by the name of Pete Seeger. Um, mm-hmm. It's going <laughs> to, there's probably only a few people that would ever uh, in the UK ever know him, but he, back in the, the, the 50s and the 40s, 50s, and 60s, he was, uh, he was like Bob Dylan. In fact, he inspired Bob Dylan. Uh, what he, he was, uh, 
a traveling mate with Woody Guthrie, the guy that mm-hmm. uh, folk singer who started a you know uh, they had a group called the Weavers, then um, a few groups, but they were basically folk singers who used music to inspire activism in the longs of uh, doing unions, you know, uh, motivating poor people to rise up, um, you know, take um, take action and. When I was about 17, I, I went to uh, New York State to meet Pete Seeger. He was starting the first annual Croton Hudson River Revival. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, this is uh, so I think they just had their 40 something anniversary. So, this is the first one. He's trying to clean up the Hudson River. And at that time, it was just like nobody got near the Hudson River. There was PCBs being dumped in it. It was like, you know, like a lot of rivers around the world, uh, they were the basically the sewer for industry and for communities. And he envisioned a world where, you know, a time when it would be cleaned up and people could fish and swim. And I thought, what a crazy old man, you know, you know, I I just liked his music and I liked what he stood for. And I, but I thought he was nuts and, um, or just nuts. Isn't the right word. Just sort of like Pollyanna, um, you know, but now, you know, he, he died a couple years back, but people are swimming in the Hudson River. They're fishing out of it. Um, they're boating. It's now a recreational, um, you know, point of beauty for a lot of people living on the Hudson River Valley. And it, it just changed the whole the perception. It took, you know, four decades. Um, but his vision was realized. And, you know, I guess back then I, I, he was... What, what I was joining him on, he was doing an anti-nuclear power uh, plant crusade, mm-hmm. and um, that was effective. You know, we, he, had, he got some plants, you know, uh, never got started because of the activism around it. Um, and I saw what music could do, what art could do to inspire people to get motivated, especially when you're in a communal setting like that. And um, I think inspired by that, I, you know, I really took a, you know, a sharp turn. I was, I was interested in the photographers um, that were come from a generation called like the, the concerned photographers, like, right. uh, you know, I don't know, Elliot Erwitt, uh, Eugene Smith, uh, Robert Kappa, Cornell Kappa, people that use the camera as kind of a weapon to, you know, create awareness and change. And in fact, the first story I did for National Geographic, I was the first guy they hired in about over 11 years. The mm-hmm. first story I did was on the uh, for a special edition of the magazine on the energy issue uh, back in the, so this would have been like 1980. Um, they were turning the Western United States from ranches into coal mines, especially out in the Powder River Basin of Wyoming. Mm-hmm. That was my first story for the magazine. And then I thought, well, a friend of mine said, there's 30,000 photographers, working photographers in New York. All of them are good enough to shoot for National Geographic. What separates, you know, the the people that work here at the magazine, he said, were people that come up with their own ideas. And he had a, a really wicked sense of humor. You know, we would think of like, you know, and Geographic always had these uh, sort of utopian views of the, of the of the world, like, you know, walk across America, like a couple walks across America to discover the real America. 
and we would say like, okay, let's do it. Like, a, you know, we'd be like the sort of the mad magazine, sort of the far, the, the far side of that. <laughs> and we say, well, like, let's we'll do bulldozer across America. And we'll show the, you know, like, and we try to invent all the ways that geographic would do it. If it was a serious story, we sort of, you know, we, you know, find great humor in that, you know, like uh, the maggot, our life, the life goes on inside a corpse. And we think of all the stories that geographic would do. And one day we were up in the lunchroom at geographic and, he said, well, you know, there's, there's all these, uh, you know, the geographics always doing the modern archaeologists with the pit helmet, you know, and, you know, the intrepid explorer, you know, and they're always looking for like a, an ancient garbage pit. Why don't we do like a, gar like a, you know, story of like a, on, on modern garbage. And I was like, just then I heard about this guy, Bill Rathjay, who is a, a archaeologist and he's doing stories of modern garbage based on his, his uh, looking at Mayan civilizations, he's, but he's using modern garbage. And then uh, he said, oh, you could do like garbage art, you know, people making art out of it. I said, geez, I read about this guy, Larry Fuente up in Northern California that, that has like a whole bunch of, uh, you know, it's a whole clan of people doing that where they take found objects from the beach and they make them into, into art. And then there's sort of a light bulb went on in my head and like, you know, propose a story on garbage. And they accepted it. And that's, I became the first person geographic hired in more than, like I said, more than a decade. And it was, you know, those were all environmental stories. And I love doing that. But like back then, that, that garbage story, there's only one mandatory recycling program in all of America back then. Mm. So the working title of that um, story I proposed for, for National Geographic, I called it Urban Ore. In other words, it's stuff that's found in the environment and it's worth something. It's not to be, you know, thrown away. And, you know, we went to cultures where they were uh, guarding the, the dump with, you know, soldiers to protect it from people, the rag pickers, from taking it and selling the garbage for higher prices outside of the dump. Um, and it was, it was, I did this story about the, the culture around garbage. Now, what I didn't understand then and what I do now is that, you know, ge geographic had a lot of reach back then about uh, we I was working there at the peak of their circulation about 11 million people got the magazine yeah and for every person that got the magazine it had a pass around rate of about four so you know your mother's house you know people would come over they'd be at the dentist's office the doctor's office people rarely threw it away they figured for for every issue that was out there so 44 million people saw the magazine back then that's you know 15 percent of the of the country yeah. And um, right after that, there was a lot of things going on. I don't want to say, you know, I did the story, we, the magazine did the story and recycling began to take off, but it did. I mean, it, and it was, it was a, a lot of things going on. It was a cultural shift going on. It was, a, a, you know, other magazines, other, you know, politicians getting on the bandwagon. And, you know, now there's recycling under, you know, we have it here at the, the place I'm staying. You have it at the hotels. You have it in your offices everywhere. And but that but back then, you know, we were like, you know, not even early adopters. We were like crazy people. Right. You know, gar a garbage story in National Geographic was almost comical. But also but, that sort of story in National Geographic about uh, exposing the true face of environmental problems has become a staple of what they do these days as well. So not only did you draw attention to that particular issue, but you also kind of, I suppose, played a role in in building that sort of that type of story into what National Geographic does to today. Yeah, well, that's a small role. I mean, <laughs> but uh, yeah, but I mean, it's, it's all part of a big, big machine. And I think that's, you know, one thing we have to understand is we're, 
you know, it's never just one person making a, a difference. It's, uh, you know, you're part of a big collective, you know, for the films we do, I, you know, I, as the director, get a lot of attention, but I'm very aware that at the end of the movie, there's, you know, five minutes of credits and there's a thousand people and you take any one of those people out of there, you, they do less of a job, the whole movie's going to be less. And what we try to do is just keep, you know, bring out the best of everybody so we can collectively make something much greater than the whole. Um, and geographic was like that. There was, you know, you needed, you, know, you needed to have a, an editor that supported your vision. You need to have a managed editor that supported the vision of the editors. You had to have the, you know, the advertising department really understand what you were trying to do. You had to have a collective of people. And, and back then, uh, geographic was very much in the, you know, the education market. And I think they're, you know, they're like that now. But it was, it's, you know, things are changing quite a bit. They're, they're owned by Murdoch. And then now they're owned by, I think the deal's going to go, be going through with Disney. And there's still, you know, some of the same people there and there's some of the same vision, but things are changing. You know, they have to be um, probably a little bit more fiscally um, responsible than we were back then. Mm -hmm. You know, back then we had, you know, an incredible amounts of money, you know, as a, as a, as a college student coming, you know, coming out of you know, being broke and then, you know, being told by the, you know, the, the head of the accounting division, you know, son, our problem is not how to make money. Ours is how to get rid of it. You know, travel first class, you know, spend as much time and, 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 and money you need to, uh, to be on stories, stay in first class hotels, treat your friends to dinner. You know, they had magnolia trees in the parking lot in downtown Washington, D.C.'s. You know, it was a different world back then. But <laughs> we'd like to say we did our best to keep them nonprofit. But, but you know, I, I say that sort of flippantly, but really it was like, you know, people say, oh, man, if you have, you have all that money, you had all that time, you know, uh, of course, he came back with great stories. But the thing is, what people, you know, anybody that understands, or like if you're a director, if you're, uh, you know, if you're if you're anybody with that in that position of um, power, there's also a big position of responsibility because, mm -hmm. you know, if I didn't do a great job, there's, you know, 30,000 other photographers chomping at the bit to get my job. So it was never... Um, you know, just like, you know, just sort of casually going through the day, we, you know, my day was started, you know, early in the morning, you know, before sun, way before sunrise, um, shooting through the day, waiting for magic hour, you know, plotting the next day. I mean, it was, a, it was a heck of a lot of work, you know, for a young kid out of school. Um, I, I enjoyed it. You know, the, you know, the, the energy and the enthusiasm is, you know, it's wonderful, but it's also a personal blessing that you have that, you know, there's no excuse. When, when somebody says, here, kid, take as much money as you want, as much time as you want to come back with the best story you can. We're not interested in a mediocre. The burden is is wonderful, but it's also like uh, a curse because like, you know, you're in, the, in the front of your mind every day when you wake up is shit. You know, I've got to go out and make, you know, magic. Even if there's, you can't see it, you got to make it or, you know, dig deeper, you know, and and find the images because if you don't, you know you're you're done. And did you did you feel that same pressure a little bit when you were working on um, the Cove? So I think I've got this right. Your friend, your diving buddy Jim Clark, said that he was going to finance you to the tune of about a million dollars a year to produce the film. So he's kind of giving you the money and saying, you know, go and make this film about this issue which we both care about through your experiences of diving together, right? Right. Um, yeah, I mean, it carried through. I mean, it was a, you know, it's a lot of money for a doc, but, um, you know, the, the docs that we do, 
Um, you know, if you look at like Racing Extinction or even The Cove, I mean, you know, I was sitting with at uh, dinner last night in New York with somebody and they said, oh, you've been to, you know, one IWC meeting. This is an International Whaling Commission meeting. I was like, no, it was, it was one at Chile, the one in Anchorage, the one in St. Kitts. That's all for the same movie. You know what I mean? I was sort of, so each one of those represents another year. It took like five years to make it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we're, we're traveling all around the world. We're, you know, and, you know, the docs I do, we, we don't really know what we're doing until we, until we get into the story. Mm. You know, you can, you can write a treatment, you know, um, but it's really, you know, Jacques Cousteau said that, you know, when asked by uh, uh, an executive producer who's going to give him some money to make a film, he's if we give you the money to do to make this film, what are you going to find when you go there? And he said, "If I knew, I wouldn't go." <laughs> and, and it's kind of true. It's like you know, it's a little bit boring to to know you know to be if you're going out with this preconceived notion of what the story is. If you're a really good uh, journalist, you know, you're asking questions, you're finding stuff on the field, and you're finding you know ideas that are way better than what you thought of when you were sitting in your office, in your sterile office back in Washington, D.C., or your apartment back in New York, or wherever you happened to be living at the time. It's like reality is much, much more interesting than whatever you can imagine. And uh, that's you know, almost always the case. You know, the, story, the, the stories that, that, make, that, that make it surprise you are the ones that probably surprise the filmmaker. You know, it's like you, you go out there and you're like, oh, my God, I had no idea. And so, you know, when you're in the field, you're always asking questions. You're always, and I remember we, I was with Sean Heinrichs and uh, we were in, we were going to be going to Taiwan. We met in Hong Kong and we were going to be going to Taiwan, I think the next day to film uh, shark fins. And Paul Hilton came through the door and he just showed me this, this rooftop that he just, of shark fins that he just got done filming. And, you know, we had plane tickets, we had train tickets, we had fixers waiting for us in Taiwan, we had, everything's all set to go. And I was like, just a minute, it's right here. It's right down the street. Mm. You know, we're, why go to another country when this is like really dramatic, you know, with the, this field of, uh, rooftop field of shark fins, and it's like right down there. And it was, you know, it was scary to get up there. It wasn't easy. Um, but, you know, that's just one example of, let's say, let's just, just go for it, you know, see what, you know, and it was just by just staying, paying attention and staying awake. You know, there's a, a, a famous artist that just died recently, Xavier Corbero from Spain. And, you know, I asked him what it means to be an artist. And he says, I, I don't have an idea. I don't know what, what makes a good artist. But I think, uh, you know, just being aware makes you an artist. He says, sometimes uh, my cleaning lady says has, you know, has more um, art artistic eye than uh, a lot of the artists that come through here because she's awake. She sees things, you know, with the, the child's eye. And I think when you're out on assignment, you're still try you're trying to do that same thing where you're trying to just be, take that opportunity, wake up and just be like a, a live nerve out there looking and viewing. And, you know, you, you have ideas, you have a shop, everybody has starts out with a shopping list. You're not going to say, Oh, I got, I want to go to this country and think I'm going to, you know, to see what we can find. It's like, you have an idea, you shoot for it, but then being able to, to dodge and weave and, you know, be creative, I think is uh, what makes a, you know, a good photographer, a good writer, a good, you know, filmmaker, a good anything, you know, you, you wake up during the day and you might have a, a really good intention, 
of how the day is going to be shaping up. But, you know, the, the most memorable days for me are sometimes the ones that were somebody pops into your life and you could be like, you could be too busy or you'd be like, this person's interesting. And then, you know, you, you wake up the next, you, you're ready to go to bed. You thought, boy, I'm glad I wasn't, I didn't say I was busy, you know, cause we're all busy, right? We're all like, got, we're all overbooked. We all have too much time, but just staying aware, like Xavier Corbero said is, um, is the gift that, you know, we're born with. And it's the struggle to, to stay, you know, uh, to stay awake, to stay alive throughout our lives as we get to think we know what our days are like. Well, it seems a little bit like that was how The Cove came about by this guy, if I remembered his name correctly, Ray, who'd been campaigning against the dolphin slaughter. Rickleberry? Yeah, for many, many years out there. Getting in touch with you and asking you to come out and almost like that being something slightly out of the blue that you just decided to say, you know, yes, this is the opportunity that I'm going to take and I'm going to go and explore this story a bit more. Yeah. And, you know, to, to that point, you know, when Clark, you know, sent me out to go get a, a story about, you know, what's going on with the oceans. I mean, we, you know, we could have we, we were looking at everything. I was going to marine mammal conferences. I was going, you know, asking scientists, you know, I, I did the same. I researched the story the same way I did at Geographic. Mm. You go to conferences, you try to meet the top researchers in the world in that field. And then you uh, you spend a day with them. And find out, you know, look at it through their eyes. And usually, you know, it's not a phone call. It's usually just hanging out with them for a day, you know, going out. And back in those days, it'd be like getting a drink or having a, you know, a lunch, getting to know them, um, you know, pretty intimately in terms of like who they are and what they're really about. And after they break down from the science side and they become human beings, they'll, they'll you know, it's usually at some moment they'll let their uh, guard down and say, oh, boy, you know. You know this. This is going on over there, and then they're so you know they'll start talking. And you're like, and your journalist ears perking up. And you're like, oh my god, this is this is the story. I came here for something else, but this is way more interesting. And that happened. You know that happened with the Cove. I went to a marine mammal conference with two thousand of the world's top marine mammal scientists. You know whale researchers, and Rick was supposed to be talking on a video night, and they wouldn't let him talk. And I started asking. Well, he's the the guy that trained Flipper. And he, you know, captured and trained the five female dolphins that collectively played play, play the, the part of Flipper. And he was going to talk about the dolphin slaughter in Taiji. Yeah. And I had never heard of that. And, you know, I was, I mean, at that point, I wasn't really even, uh, you know, I didn't even know how to use a video camera. But Rick asked me if I wanted to go over. And I said, well, uh, why don't you go over and I'll catch up with you. And I took a three-day crash course on how to make a film. And we made the cove. <laughs> And I wanted to I wanted to ask as well, um, you know, so many of the striking moments in both the Cove and Racing Extinction are those moments where, as you say, we're living vicariously through through you or through Sean, seeing seeing you guys discover for the first time with your own eyes the scale of the slaughter that's going on. But prior to making those films, maybe during your during your diving um, with Jim Clark. Were there any moments where you had really special or memorable encounters with places or with animals that really stuck with you and maybe even motivated you to to make those films? Yeah, I mean, I remember um, Clark had been telling me for, you know, a long time, you know, years about the best place that I ever had been diving. And, he, you know, he would, you know, over wine, he would, you know, sort of 
like you know the way he would you talk about it was like Shangri-La and you know one year it's like I'm gonna take you there you know and you know getting there you know I have to sort of qualify you know it was it wasn't easy but it was easy the way we you know he'd pick me up on his golf stream and we'd you know, have his yacht waiting and then we'd sail for a couple of days to get there. So it was, you know, it was, it was as nice of an experience as you could. It was as far as the comfort of getting there, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't just like, you know, a hop on a commercial flight and get there. It was like a trek. And we, you know, we go there, you're, you know, it's, you're going through customs and you're, you know, you know, getting the boat going and you're sailing out there for a few days. And then, uh, you know, you're out in the boondocks. I mean, there's no telephones, there's no electricity, all the people that all the locals are traveling by dugout canoe. There's not even like, you know, aluminum motor boats. It's all like stuff like you see in National Geographic 50 years ago. And we, we dove in on this this reef on the, the GPS coordinates and it was rubble. It was completely gone. What country was this? Yeah. Sorry. This is Papua New Guinea. Right. And um, we don't know. We still don't know what happened, but it was rubble. So maybe it could have been dynamite fishing. Um, yeah. I don't know. Back then, if it could have been a bleaching event, but there wasn't anything left. It was gone. And I mean, he was, he came up and he was dazed, you know, like, uh, you know, he was just shocked. And I think that was like the first, I mean, you sort of um, anecdotally, you know, can say that every time you go for a dive, there's less and less, you know, animals. But we weren't doing like reef surveys. You know, we were just going like, boy, it's, you know, it's not as good as it was last time. And then you know, the third time we went to the Galapagos, we saw fishermen illegally fishing in a, for sharks in a marine sanctuary. And Clark said, well, somebody should do something about this. And um, I said, well, how about you and I? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, we'll take your money and my eye and we'll make films. And that was, you know, that was the. Uh, you know, in my memory, the beginning of the uh, the idea. I mean, Clark always wanted to do something like Jacques Cousteau. We all, you know, we both really loved what he had done. You know, I think we were both inspired by, you know, you, you couldn't be a, uh, a a kid or a young boy in America in the, you know, the, the 60s and 70s and not be inspired by Jacques Cousteau. Mm. He was, you know, the epitome of, you know, the explorer, the poet, the naturalist. Sort of, he was the Attenborough of today. Um so yeah, I mean that was the but that was the beginning of of OPS where we said okay let's let's uh you know put that challenge to the test and I, I mean I've told the story before but it's kind of it's kind of funny that so I thought okay I'm gonna be a filmmaker I'm like you know I'm, I can't remember this so it was like a dozen years ago so I must have been like getting into my fifties and I must switch my you know switch jobs and I have never really picked up a video camera and shot it professionally before you know i had you know a little family hand hand camera but that's not the same thing but i'm thinking okay i'm gonna make a i have to set it up a little bit better okay so jim clark for, for the people out there that don't know who he is he was uh kind of even bigger than steve jobs of my generation uh when he was in college he helped send man to the moon when JFK, John F. Kennedy, uh, called to, for Americans to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade, this is in the early 60s, um, Jim Clark was working for Boeing, you know, where the, the engines were made for the Saturn V rocket. And he was the, 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 you know, the kid working the night shift, taking the punch cards that the scientists would do and putting them into the, these, these you know, the, all their computations were done onto these, back then it was these punch cards. And if he, his job was to feed him into the computer. And it was a slow, laborious prod, uh, 
process. And Jim's like, there's no way that's going to happen by the end of the decade. You know, the bottleneck is right here. So Jim went to his boss, uh, got, you know, permission to, you know, get a, a bigger computer and set it up. And, you know, the, the boss was like, well, just so it doesn't take, you know, away, away from your personal time. So Jim is just like this incredible, passionate, tenacious human being. And he sped up the computers by 20 fold to make it happen. That's what that remember. This is when he's a college kid when he mm. did this. And then when he started working at Stanford, he invented along with his students, the first, uh, uh, 3d graphics engine. This is the, this is the way that you could play with video games in real time. D designers could do stuff in real time. That's his chip, Silicon graphics. It was the, you know, look it up, Google it. It was, it was the, you know, the Apple computer of its day, the, you know, we, they bought Craig supercomputers and the day he quit that he started Netscape, the first commercial internet browser, the first way that, you know, most people of my generation got on the internet. Yeah. It was like him and, yeah. and, uh, Andreessen, you know, coming up with, uh, with Netscape. And then he started WebMD when I, when I met him. So he had, you know, he started $3 billion companies, three, three companies that went, made it way over a billion dollars from scratch. In other words, there wasn't a market before he got there. He invented the market. And then, um, you know, he was, he was like, Louis, would you teach me how to be a good photographer? I said, I'll, Jim, I'll teach you how to be a great one if you teach me how to be a billionaire. <laughs> and I, I taught him about everything I knew about Photoshop and, you know, like, you know, a couple of days. And he was like, well, what's the algorithm behind, you know, the color space? And I was like, that's, you know, out, out of my pay grade. And then so he would call up the guys from that started Adobe used to work for him. So then he started Shutterfly and made another few hundred million dollars. I mean, the guy, every, so this is all a way of setting up. So like, when he said somebody should do something about this, I felt emboldened because I saw here's a, a guy that's my best friend changed the world at every almost everything he did. I mean, not everything he did was successful, but mm. they, but they he certainly did change the world. He changed my world, and um, you know, so emboldened by that, I thought, okay, I'm going to go start a new company. I'm going to be like Jim Clark, and we're going to go make a film. And now. Uh, we, we go down to the Caribbean. At this point, he built a, a boat. It was the world's largest private sailing yacht. It's called Athena. It's about 290-some feet long, you know, masts that were, like, nearly 200 feet. And we were on this, you know, this unbelievable vessel down in the Caribbean. And my kid's playing on the beach, and he's playing with another kid. And it happens to be Steven Spielberg's kid. Now, Steven Spielberg had done Jurassic Park on Jim's computers, and so he came to the boat to meet, you know, with his family, to meet, you know, uh, the father of his son's new friend and to meet Jim Clark. And I, for that, so the first time I saw Spielberg, I said, Mr. Spielberg, do you have any advice for a you know, first time filmmaker? And he said, yeah, never make a movie involving boats or animals. <laughs> and, you know, of course, you know, the, the, the Cove was our first film and it involved a lot of boats and animals. But um, it was really, you know, Clark you know, Clark's vision, you know, him, you know, me sort of riding his coattails, not just the money, but just the, uh, the chutzpah of trying to see, you know, I just saw him do it all the time. He'd get out of bed and he would, you know, think of ways he could make the world a little bit better through technology. It's really, and, oh man. This, by, this, oh. by the way, by the way, when, you know, you know, I just saw that, uh, the cove, they had, <laughs> Kind of a retrospective of, of my work over the Telluride Mountain Film Festival, not to be confused with Mount the Telluride Film Festival. But um, but so I just saw the movie again last weekend, and 
you know, in the movie, I say to Rick, I said, I'll help him change this. They were killing about 23,000 dolphins and porpoises a year in Japan when we started that. And now they're killing 610. So it's like a, a 97% drop in dolphin deaths because of the film, the activism around the film, other film, you know, other, you know, uh, you know, politicians, you know, making things, you know, people aware that this, this meat is toxic. Uh, so it's a process, you know, it's, it's a, you know, it's about a decade since that film's come out, almost a decade. But, you know, change does happen. But, you know, we forget, you know, that things can, you know, things are, you know, generally getting better in some ways. But uh, films are really powerful weapons, you know, and I, I, it's, the best, it's the best way I know for an individual like me with, you know, that can just use a camera and a microphone to change the world. It's um, we probably haven't got time to go into it. But before you even mention it, one of the questions I wrote down was whether or not you've drawn any inspiration from um, films like Jurassic Park, because I know you've got an interest in paleontology and dinosaurs and past mass extinctions. And that's really fed into your uh, to racing extinction and your focus on the current mass extinction that we're living through. And I, you know, I jotted down the question that maybe we don't have time to delve into about whether or not those films that no, got so audiences really so encapsulated <laughs> about big creatures had influenced the way you'd made your films. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I did four stories on the Mesozoic for National Geographic. That's the mm -hmm. Mesozoic is the midlife of the planet. So, so it's from about 230 to 240 million years ago to, you know, the, the, at the, the last of the end of the age of dinosaurs and the end of the Cretaceous 66 million years ago. So it's uh, like a, about, a, I think it's a hundred and, 65 million year period or whatever that is, you know, do the math on it. So it's, it's most of the, what happened on the planet happened during the Mesozoic. What's going on right now, we, we tend to think of, you know, dinosaurs being so long ago, but, you know, between the last dinosaur dying and the first one coming to fruition, there's like, you know, there's, you know, three times more history that took place than what's, you know, between us and the last dinosaur. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, when you, you would, you know, I would go all over the world, uh, with paleontologists, you know, digging up dinosaurs. And that gave me a, this unique perspective because, you you know, we tend to look outside the window and think, well, this is, it, it pretty much looked like this, but, but without houses. And it's, you know, it wasn't. It was a whole different world then, you know, with climate and the animals that lived here. And it was continually evolving and changing. And, you know, we like to think that we're on top, but, you know, I mean, even even if you look at, you know, dinosaurs, there's, you know, 10,000 species, 9,500 species of birds. There's, you know, 4,000, 4,500 species of mammals. And and birds are dinosaurs. They're just small dinosaurs that <laughs> took, you know, took to the wing and, you know, went to the air. But uh, they're still kicking ass. So it's a, yeah, but that that, that gave me a perspective of, okay, and, you know, I, I remember going into Mongolia and, like, if you go out to the American West, you know, some, sometimes you just find bones, you know, so, you know, it's kind of rare to find a bone yard or like a, a big, a big collection of bones or a whole animal articulated with every bone in place the way it died. You know, everybody sort of pictures like, oh, the dinosaur just, you know, keeled over and then, you know, all the bones are in place. And that's that happens sometimes, but it's very, very rare except the Gobi Desert. That's exactly what it looks like. There wasn't like, you know, a mile of sediment that goes down and then the paleontologist finds it, you know, a hundred million years later. It's like these animals died like, in a, it looks like a sandstorm. And you can, you know, it's like, it's like a kid's 
drawing of how a dinosaur died. You can, you know, you can almost trip over them over there because, you know, the sand's sort of red and brown and the, the bones are white. And, you know, they look like, you know, there's all, they're all in place, you know, of, of how they died. And it's pretty remarkable. It's like a, it's like a graveyard. And uh, when you walk along those land, landscapes, you can't help but think, like, what, what happened here? How, what killed these animals? And, you know, it's usually some, you know, it was a big uh, catastrophe. And that's exactly what's going on right now. You know, the, we're going through a mass extinction. It's called the Anthropocene. You know, the, it's the age of man where, you know, we have an, a, our own epoch named after us. You know, uh, E.O. Wilson says, or, you know, we're losing, you know, about 30,000 species a year. We're set to lose about half the known species on the planet by the end of the century. Uh, you know, we're looking. It's, it's, it might be sped up in the oceans. You know, twenty-five percent of the. You know, Sylvia Earle uh, corrected me on this uh, two days ago. Uh, is that like two days? Yeah, it was like two days ago in New York. She said, "Yeah, you can't say twenty-five percent of the species in the ocean are in the coral. Said, the known species. We we're still discovering species all the time, but." You know, we're losing the coral reefs. You know, we've lost, uh, you know, something like two-thirds of the, the Great Barrier Reef in the last two years. You know, so this, you know, this eventuality that we're talking about end of the century, we might just be ridiculously off in terms of our calculation, our conservative calculation of how fast the environment's changing. And, you know, some people say we, you know, we're running out of time. People say, some people say, We've ran out of time. Uh, you know, we don't know where, where we're at in the cycle, but we know it's we, we know if we don't reverse it. We're screwed. And, you know, you know, the, the, and what pisses me off is like people say, even paleontologists say, oh, the Earth is going to be fine. Like, how is that going to be fine? It's like, OK, because we'll be gone and we'll take out, you know, half the other species or more with us. Is that fine? I mean, could somebody really say that, that, you know, our actions, then the earth will bounce back? Well, yeah, it's going to bounce back. But like, it's like saying, you know, I'm going to go, you know, kill everybody, you know, half the people in the classroom, they're, you know, they'll, they'll start to procreate again. Except, you know what, these species aren't coming back. They're, they're, they're dying out. And they're dying out because of us. And, you know, we don't, we're not carrying a gun, but, you know, we are in the sense that our lifestyle, we know that our lifestyle the, you know, our use of carbon dioxide, the, you know, our, our consumption of, of meat, the, you know, uh, mowing down wild places to grow food for animals that we're in turn going to eat because there's too many of us and that we're, you know, really not thinking holistically about how you, you preserve an environment. We're, I think it was uh, um, Buckminster Fuller, you know, compared this, you know, the earth is, you know, it's, you know, it's a, it's, we're on a spaceship going through, you know, that, 70,000 miles with the sun, 70,000 kilometers an hour, and we're rotating at, you know, 500 miles an hour this way. And, you know, we're, we're uh, you know, uh, we're at a rocket ship going through the, the cosmos, but we're not spectators. This isn't a cruise ship where we all just, you know, happen to get a, you know, a ride in first class cabins. We're crew. We have to take care of it. And we're not doing that. Um, and I think the sooner we can wake up everybody to that idea that, you know, we have to be taking care of the environment, that it's, um, you know, because it's taking care of us. You know, um, you, people say, oh, I don't really care about the oceans. But, you know, you've heard this before. It's like two out of every three breaths you take 
come from the oceans. You know, the, the oceans generate far more oxygen than all the land plants in the world. Um, there's, you know, some people say a billion people rely on food. You know, they, they, they count on food from the oceans. And if you're, you know, you don't have to be a fisherman to know that, you know, the prices of fish are getting higher and the fish is becoming more scarce. And it's because there's less of it. There's, there's, there's more of us. And as we start to eat, you know, you know, get wealthier, we start to eat more meat, which is killing us. You know, it's not just the, the toxins in the in the, the food now. It's it's really, you know, the meat itself, animal products itself aren't aren't good for you. We're not made to be eating, you know, as much animal products as we are. And it's not sustainable. Yeah, well I you know, so I watched um I watched Cove, I watched Racing Extinction. I watched Cowspiracy and I watched What What the Health all within the space of the last six or nine months and went from being a vegetarian pescatarian for the last 10 years to being fully vegan for the last four months or so. So that brings us around nicely to your current projects, which I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about. Yeah. The, the game changers. It's a, it's a film, you know, I tell, I've been telling audiences we're, we're just in the film festival circuit now. Uh, and like I said, we're, you know, we're still actually working on the film. Still shooting. I was filming. Uh, well, well the, first of all, the film is about um, disproving the, the mythology that to be a man or to be a successful woman in, in athletics, you need to have animal products to thrive. It's in fact, it's probably just the opposite. Mm. You know that to it's ne neither normal, necessary, or natural for human beings to eat animal products, especially in the, the quantities that we're doing it right now. There's really good scientific evidence. And uh, through the film, we show anecdotal evidence. You know, the, the world's strongest guy is a vegan. Patrick Baboomian carried more weight further than any human being in, in history. He has the you know, four Guinness Book of World record, rec uh, Records for, uh, for strongman competitions. Scott Jurek is the most accomplished, you know, male runner in the world. He, I was with him when he ran the Appalachian Trail. Um, uh, you know, uh, we were just filming Lewis Hamilton yesterday in New York City. He's Lewis Hamilton is the, you know, probably won more Formula One races than any other human in history. And he just went vegan and he said he has more mental clarity and, you know, more alertness and, and getting stronger than he's ever been in his life. And he, he's, you know, he just wishes he would have done it before. Um, and that's what we're hearing from all. We, we just filmed the uh, Tennessee Titans. About 14 of their members went plant-based um last season they had their best season in 15 years um there's a lot of you know great anecdotal evidence out there and great scientific fact out there that um men especially but i say men because we're, we're marketed to you know we're told to be a real man you have to eat meat yeah and you know the consumption of meat is probably killing more people than anybody on the planet you know heart disease is now the the number one killer of humans on the planet uh, and by the way, you know, a plant-based diet, a vegan diet is the only diet known to reverse heart disease. Mm. It's better, it's more powerful than stents or statins. It's, uh, uh, it, it's, they, they prove that it can reverse early stage diabetes. It can, uh, Dean Ornish, who did the, um, you know, both of the, the previous, uh, researchers, uh, research on that so is now, uh, starting a, uh, experiment next month where he's going to try to. Uh, reverse early stage Alzheimer's because there's a pretty good evidence that if it's helping reverse it, it's probably the animal based diet is, is, you know, partly responsible for causing it in the first place. Mm. You know, when you clog up your body, 
with all the TMAOs, new 5G3s, the saturated fats, there's really good evidence that, you know, over time, that's going to muck up your system. You know, and a plant-based diet tends to open up your, your arteries. And uh, a meat-based diet, they can show experimentally, they can show that it, uh, it impedes the endothelial lining, the, the innermost lining of your arteries that allow your, your veins to contract and expand. Um, you know, the, the arteries are not just like a, a tube, like a, you know, the, the plumbing that you get your, you know, your water from. It's like they're, they're constantly opening and closing depending on what part of your body you need to send, you know, nutrients, blood, oxygen. And uh, if, if that's being impeded um, and you're eating animal products three times a, a day, you know, your endothelial layers are, are always impaired and you're always comp your body's always compromised. And so the film, it doesn't, you know, we go into the science of it. We sort of, we follow these stories of these athletes doing great feats on a, on a plant-based diet. And I told the audiences that I think it's going to be the, probably the most impactful environmental film ever made. And it's talking very little about the environment mm, because yeah. you know, we're giving, we're giving people the tools that they think, you know, to qualify that, you know, or just, just the, you know, if, if a person goes vegetarian or, or vegan, um, depending on what you get them on their life cycle, the average human being, the average person from the UK eats 10,400 animals in their lifetime. Yeah. So if you get a, let's say, uh, a man that's going to live to 70, you get about 35 years old, you know, you're saving, you know, 5,000 animals. So then, you know, that's another, but by doing that, you're going to save about a, a ton, ton and a half of carbon dioxide per person per year. And if you're getting a, let's say a Chinese person that's in the middle class, he's, he's getting, you know, going to be eating vegetarian, not, you know, laying off dairy because of this, then, uh, you know, more wild uh, acreage isn't being taken away for, you know, from wild animals. So we're saving wild animals. We're saving, you know, farm animals from life of suffering. We're saving people, you know, from a, a life of suffering from heart disease and diabetes and maybe Alzheimer's. Um, and, and you're saving money and you know it's, it's a win 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 all across yeah. the board yeah. and, and we're not we're, we're not saying you know you should be more of an environmentalist like, why, why aren't you more compassionate why don't you care about these things and you know the average bloke is at home and going well because it costs more you know or but if you can prove that it's to them that it's not normal necessary natural to eat the way that they're doing it then we've got them we've got an environmentalist without really you know making him, you know, think about being too much of an environmentalist. Or also exactly. that you can feel awesome, look awesome, achieve amazing things like the people that you're telling the stories of in the film. Right, right. When, um, when will audiences in the UK or Europe be able to see it? I know it's for... That's a good question. Stuff. We haven't licensed it yet. Um, okay. You know, we're talking to several distributors, so I would, I would say, you know, in the fall, hopefully. You know, we're not going to be done until September, so after September. Okay, cool. <laughs> I know that I'm looking forward to it already. Um, I've got, I've got one other question that I wanted to just go back to, because I think it's an interesting one. I noticed in your Google lecture that you gave and, uh, that you mentioned about, you know, you can produce art, but at the end of the day, you've still, it's still important to pay people for their art. And then at the very end of your TEDx talk, you also talk about very briefly about the concept of a carbon tax. So I was wondering very briefly if you could uh, talk about 
what your view is on needing to get the price or the value right in order to properly protect protect the environment and just to value properly things that are worth something to society. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, there's there's an old, you know, I think it's from the, I believe it's from the 1930s that you know the tragedy of the commons, where if there's a resource that's common to a lot of people, and it just, it just takes one person to you know, say, oh, well, I'm going to take a little bit more, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to cut down that tree that was made for everybody, or we're saving it for a future generation, and then that once that one does it, then other people start saying, well, then I'm going to get my share, and then it, it starts to fall apart. You know, we're, we we do that with you know, with carbon dioxide, we do that with oxygen. You know, we're, we're, we don't think about the consequences that, you know, what we're doing is affecting people in Syria. You know, this is a, the biggest drought that they've had in, you know, you know, not just years, but I think centuries. You know, it's partly, to, we're, we're partly to blame it for it. I mean, if we had to pay for the relocation of the hundreds of millions of people from Bangladesh that are having to re relocate because of rising water, you know, uh, I mean, it's because you look at those maps, uh, you know, of, of where the water line is going to be if we, you know, get up a, you know, one meter, two meters, three meters, four meters at the end of the century. It's like, mm. and you're talking about, you know, many trillions of dollars. There's no tax on that. No, we're not paying. We're, 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 we're paying that. We're making our children pay forward, you know, centuries from, or decades from now. So that's not figured into our cheap cost of gasoline here in America. You know, we, we you know, we. I know you pay a lot more for petrol over there, but you know here we're paying you know about four dollars over four dollars. I don't know what that comes out to in quid or pounds, but you know what is it two and a half or yeah two and a half per, something like that per gallon. Um, we don't figure in the cost of a military, mm. and I'm not talking about just the wars. I'm talking about it's, it costs I think it was six or seven trillion dollars to keep the Middle Eastern ports uh, in operation, and I'm, I'm not talking about having running a war through there. I'm just talking like seven trillion dollars to have uh, Middle Eastern ports guarded by American military Troop station. There. Yeah, that, that comes out to about thirty thousand dollars for every man, woman, child in America, not just taxpayers, every single man, woman and child in America, you know, illegal alien or not. They're, they're, we're, we're paying that much, you know, in our taxes through, you know, to, to, to keep them over there. And that's not figured into the cost of gasoline. We don't figure in the cost of the, the wars. Now add another $30,000 for every man, woman, child in America for the, the two wars that we've been fighting over there, which are primarily caused on you know, our policies over there. Um, that, that's, that, those aren't figured into the, you know, the cost of doing business. We're not, you know, we don't think of any, you know, any of the environmental costs hardly of what we do, but yet we, we allow companies to you know, to, to burn carbon dioxide. And it, but by the way, it doesn't cost that much to like, if you want to like, like, you know, uh, pay a penance for your, your air travel. It's like, you know, 20, 30,000, 20 or $30 a year to put into a fund that's going to, you know, preserve a rainforest or plant trees, um, where, you know, the, the trees, you know, are allowed to keep on maintaining a, a carbon sink or, mm -hmm. or grow new ones. It's relatively inexpensive, but we don't like, you know, if you start to put a tax on that, people get up in arms because of any new taxes. But like we're still, you know, we're still making people pay for it. You know, it's just that we don't want to do it now. We're, we're, we're pretty we're pretty uh, short sighted human beings, especially Americans. We're, we're the worst. You know, you have a, a light bulb, a LED light bulb that, you know, might cost ten dollars as opposed to a dollar. 
And you know, American will look at it like, "Well, I'll save nine dollars." But over the over the lifetime, the dollar light bulb is going to cost them one hundred twenty dollars, and the LED bulb will last for you know, he'll never have to change it. He'll you know, he'll be he'll, he'll be buried before that light bulb needs to be changed, and you know, it'll cost you know pennies on the dollar. But American goes, "Oh, I'm saving nine dollars." <laughs> We're crazy. We're insane. And that's what, and part of I think what making a docus do is trying to make the world a little bit more sane. Yeah, you know, you're just trying to dial that a little bit and get to get you know create the awareness and create the action. More importantly, that creates the change so that people, you know, are doing the right thing. They're all doing the right thing. I like your line about um, as opposed to kind of the big the big studios that see you just as a bum on a seat in a cinema theater. You see them as minds and hearts on seats that you're trying to trying to influence. And at the very end of Racing Extinction, you have these incredible images that are beamed onto the the UN conference buildings and you've done that on other buildings in different countries. And that's kind of what I wanted to ask as a wrap up as a wrap up question, which is um, if you could put a message on a billboard, whether it's a quote by someone else or a message by you for thousands or millions of people to see, what would it be? Or maybe in your case, it wouldn't be a quote. Maybe it would be an image. You know, we're actually working on that right now. I mean, those are, I'll just say this. I'll leave it with this. You know, the, we, you know we, we lit up the Empire State Building, and um, I mean, the, the producers thought that was nuts to do that. They said it's you know it's gonna be too expensive. It's gonna be you know on a Saturday night in the summer, all the important people are gonna be gone. They said they'll be over in the Hamptons or be over in you know vacation in Europe. Mm. The press, you know, because it, it gets dark late. Um, the press can't afford to pay overtime, so even if you can pull it off, it'll be a non-event. This is when we lit up the Empire State Building, and so we had, you know, we did this on a Saturday night, and you know, when you looked over the edge of the building from, you know, we had uh, rented out a little part of the bar overlooking the Empire State Building, and my son came up and said, you know, Dad, there's people on the streets, and I was like, I was thinking, okay, well, there's people waiting to get up to the bar, you know, and there's a lot of people waiting to see the spectacle, seeing the spectacle. I didn't realize that he meant like on the street itself, Fifth Avenue. When I looked over, finally looked over the edge of the building, it was like an Easter parade. It was like traffic was stopped on the on the on the sides of the street. There was like people, the kids sitting on cars. It was just like this is at like you know eleven o'clock at night in Manhattan on a Saturday night. It was like it was beautiful. This this huge spectacle, and you know they weren't hearing the music that we were playing, but you know um, every one of those people had a cell phone. You know, there's, you know, probably hundreds of thousands of people saw that event, maybe, you know, I don't know about millions, but all of them had cell phones and they all pumped it out on their, you know, took pictures and put it on their networks. Uh, we were the top trended, that endangered species on the buildings that we did were the top trending story on Facebook and Twitter for four days worldwide. And we had, uh, I think it was 939 million media views by Thursday. And I thought we couldn't get any more attention on the, on that subject than we did. And then the Pope called, and this is right before COP21. He wanted us to, during COP21, he wanted us to uh, put images and, and endangered species on the Vatican. Mm. Uh, just to remind people that there's, you know, to look, you know, creation and dominion is not just about, you know, exploiting these animals. It's about saving them. And, you know, I think we had 4.4 billion media views within five days with that event. 600 of the media showed up. Um, so we're working on something that's going to be much bigger than the Vatican and and that. But uh, so you're, you'll just have to wait to find out what we're doing because we're okay. working on it. 
So on that cliffhanger. <laughs> Great. All right. Continue. Um, Louis, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. It's been a real honor, particularly having watched your films and seen all of your great work. Um, so yeah, and good luck with good luck with that project and good luck with the game changers. I can't wait to see that either. Cheers. Cheers. Take care. Bye. Bye. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation and you can find more of them at wildvoicesproject.org on Twitter at wildvoicesproj or by subscribing to the podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks very much, and until next time.